Hello and welcome back to episode 8 of the Digital Sociology Podcast with Chris Till. Uh, in today's episode, I'm talking to Warren Pierce, uh, who is a researcher at the University of Sheffield, and he's um, doing work on the discussion of um, and how communities are built around climate change issues um, and how they're built online. Uh, on social media uh, in particular he's, he's focusing on YouTube and doing analysis of YouTube comments uh, so I'll hear more about that uh, in in this discussion in a minute uh, as uh, as ever you can follow me on Twitter at Chris H Till um, if you've got any comments about the uh, about the podcast about the series and you can find more about the about the series on my blog, which is this is not a sociology blog. And also, uh, you can download and subscribe on to the podcast on iTunes and on SoundCloud and uh, any of your podcast apps. So here's my chat with Warren. Okay, so uh, now I'm talking to Warren Pierce, um, who's based over at the University of Sheffield, and I've come over here to have a, a chat with him. So, hi, Warren. Uh, hi, Chris. Um, so, thanks for talking to me. Um, I think uh, most of what we're going to talk about today is a project which is, I think, it's still fairly early in process. Yeah. Um, but um, is broadly around um, the communication of um, climate change um, science and information. Um, through online platforms, is that roughly right? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, social media platforms. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah, that's a good uh, summary. Uh, yeah, I'll say a little bit about that. So the project's called Making Climate Social, mm. and uh, it's a three-year project, and it's been funded by ESRC as part of the Future Leaders Program, which is now called something else. But uh, it's the Early Career Researcher uh, Program. And um, it's essentially, so I, it grew, uh, it probably makes sense to explain how it came about and that sort of explains the rationale for it. So um, before I came to Sheffield, I was at the University of Nottingham for three years on their kind of STS science politics uh, project, uh, program called Making Science Public, big program they had funded by Leverhulme Trust. And I did work around lots of different aspects of climate change there. It's kind of some stuff on policy, some stuff on communication, and some stuff on social media in particular. And I thought there was scope to do something interesting around social media uh, and climate change. There's already a lot of literature about climate change communicate. There's a lot of literature about science communication there's a lot of literature about climate change communication and there's 
increasing amounts of literature about climate communication on social media. Um, one of the reasons for that, I think, is that, well, particularly the last one, as you know, it's very easy to get a lot of data, social media data. You know, this is like social science researchers are like, I don't know, pigs in <laughs> basically, yeah, with, yeah. Uh, with the amount of data that you can easily hoover out of these, well, some of these platforms, yeah. So particularly Twitter is the obvious one. And as I... The paper, which I think we'll talk about later, as I said when I was presenting it a couple of weeks ago, there's a bit of a mismatch, I think, in the literature between the uh, social media platforms that are researched and their importance. So, for example, Twitter is one which is very, very easy to get the data out of. And I think that's led to a lot of papers about Twitter, whereas other papers, other platforms that are harder to get the data out of, such as Facebook, suppose is an obvious example. You know, it's, it's it's harder to get the data, so less stuff gets written. But even even with Twitter, it's kind of a limited stream of the data. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Unless yes. you're paying them a lot of money. Well, indeed, yes. Yeah. So you, you've yeah. So that is one of the things. That's yeah. That's part of the indeed. If you just get into Twitter, there's a certain if you think of it as a pie, if you like, there's a certain slice of the pie that's very easy to get get access to you know what the content is around a keyword as long as you're kind of collecting it live as they say mm. it's quite easy to well it's extremely easy to get, to get this data rolling out on a kind of live basis and save to a, a spreadsheet on your computer um but there's a whole bunch of other stuff which for very good reason things you know obvious things like direct messages mm. and and kind of who's being blocked etc which is kind of seen as being private information that's not open to researchers um, so yeah even within fairly open platforms like Twitter you're right but there's the amount of stuff uh, which is um, available to researchers is only you're only seeing a certain part of what of the, the, the whole picture if you like um, so when I looked at the literature I could see I could I, I mean it's my impression that this was a, a problem and I, I, in particular it's so easy to get some of this data in fact you don't really need any contextual information so there's one or two I won't necessarily name them here but there's one or two high profile or well one or two climate change social media papers have been published in high profile journals which had some which are great up to a point but when they were trying to do some analysis about what this stuff meant in the wider debate it was fairly clear to me they didn't really have very much contextual inf understanding in fact made some basic errors about mislabeling what some of these people's positions in the debate were right. um so i thought um okay so there's an opening here to do something so i've worked on climate change in say lots of different i've approached it from lots of different angles but i've been immersed in it for quite a few years so i thought i could do some social media research which brings this kind of hard to pin down but very important contextual uh insight to it uh and having an understanding of what uh what this stuff happening on social media means more widely if it does mean anything um but also playing with the idea of context also thinking is there other data that we could be collecting about social media or think other things to think about related to social media which we can't get through these APIs so easily. So there's two, I guess context is the thing, which is a classic social science thing, it's quite hard to pin down, but this was the thing that 
I very broadly I felt was lacking from a lot of this literature. Um, is that what you were trying to get to, um, from reading uh, sort of blog posts and things um, on the project? Um, you talked about taking a kind of a, a data mining approach and an ethnographic approach. Mm-hmm. So is, is that is that combination what you're trying to get up through the co- uh, to get that, at that context? Yes. Yeah, I think so. This is. Um yeah, I mean, this is some kind of holy grail situation that I've kind of I've kind of constructed, and and how successful we're going to be is, uh, well, we'll wait and see. I mean, you know, there's no there's no view from nowhere, so I, no. no, so you know, you can't. No matter how many methods you, you mix together, you're not going to. It's not necessarily going to lead to some kind of nirvana, situ, godlike situation. Well, certainly not. But I think there's the scope for being more innovative basically yeah. and the data mining stuff and you know there's well well documented and fairly well accepted critiques about big data so you know Boyd and Crawford is a classic paper about um, from a few years ago about five questions for big data um, and you've seen a little bit of this stuff so there was one uh, concept which I called thick data which I found uh, a little bit I mean hardly any in the literature but there's someone called uh, Trisha Wang who um, now works mainly I think in the private sector but um, she talked about this in a couple of presentations so this was the idea about she's done ethnographic um, work in China around uh, mobile phone usage so this was trying to see exactly how these objects quite an STS approach actually mm-hmm. trying to see how these objects fit into everyday lives and how much they're being used and how and when they're being used um, so thick data because so thick data is playing with big data and thick description obviously yeah. from ethnographic you know the classic ethnographic yeah, yeah. Uh, phrase from Gears but um, how attainable and what that really means in in practice is yeah is to be to be decided really or to be to be uh, discovered but I, there's some something there which I think we can add in and play with a bit and, and see if we can uh, make any progress and develop something which is you know introduce a a method or an approach which shows that you know it's not necessarily sufficient just to plug your uh, plug your API app in and uh, and uh, hoover some data out and that's the job done that perhaps we need to be uh, you know it's very easy to stick a paper out based on that and indeed I've done something similar to that in the past but but something uh, something which is um a bit more ambitious and perhaps gives us a, some some better quality knowledge, I guess. Yeah, absolutely, and it's yeah. There's a, a certain um, seductiveness about being able to just sort of turn turn the tap on and just Indeed. have all of this landing landing in your lap, which which is is kind of nice. And I've I mean I've a couple of Gephi networks and you're uh, well, everyone, exactly, looks, everyone yeah, likes a nice I've network diagram. Around, but I've played around with it, and every time I think, yeah, this is great. I'm going to look at, and then I sort of look at it. Oh, I don't really know what what this really means or if it all this yeah. really means very much at all indeed but um yeah it looks nice <laughs> it does look nice yeah. and, you know, they're, they're, and they're everywhere you know in mainstream uh media outlets like you know the guardian yeah. you've seen them on there and in climate change you've seen a you know, carbon brief have just done a big uh, which is one of the kind of main climate uh, specialist sites really good site but um it's done a very recent thing where they got someone into this huge mapping exercise it's like you know multiple tarantulas it looks like all but together showing how people talk to each other on twitter about climate change and different climate change related things and they're great fun and i can see people on twitter you know scientists going well where where am i on this map you know and this kind of thing but 
there's some kind of there's there's some kind of uh, playfulness related to it in that way, but I am yet to be convinced. I think would be the polite way of putting it that I don't about how much this really tells you, at least in isolation. No, but uh, kind of connected with that, <coughs> is there a uh, do you, you in the again on on the website and the blog post you uh, talked to, um, a bit about visualization? Um, just going to take a part in that, which obviously we've got the visualization of the data, but there's also the um, role of visualization in communication as yes, well. Yes. Yes. Um, what what kind of role do you think do you see that playing, uh, or, or either in your project or more generally? Okay. So yes. So in short, uh, visuals definitely are will play a role, and I. I mean, it's a natural thing to look at because there's a good strand of. Um, literature already on visuals in climate change more generally so not on social media particularly so work that Saffron O'Neill has done in Exeter on uh, on uh, visuals in climate change is probably well definitely the leading the leading uh, literature in that area um, but that was more around you know in live situations or looking at uh, showing people images of floods etc mm. in the southwest and um, looking at pictures in the mainstream media etc yeah. uh, but obviously visuals are you know hugely important in social media as part of uh, increasingly as part of you know memification and all this mm. kind of stuff so it's be it would be natural to look at that and in fact the the work we've been doing on YouTube originally um, that was one of the things that was driving it because we were interested in in maybe doing some content analysis of of, of uh, popular videos on climate change, and we may well still do that. But um, it, the work that we're doing at the moment has has taken a different turn. In fact, we've become more interested in YouTube as the platform and how it how it directs people around issues uh, in using climate change as a case study. But yeah, visuals are important. Um, and we will be doing that. In fact, we had a Discovery Day um, event in February where we got a bunch of uh, people, so uh, social media academics, climate scientists, some climate communication specialists, activists, um, in a room for a facilitated day with an attempt to kind of co-produce some research questions. So I've got some research questions that I'm interested in, kind of, kind of academic basis, but you know, a good research project, particularly something that the ESRC are, are funding, um, needs to be able to demonstrate as having some, you know, real world impacts in quotes. So um, it was important, I think, to get some idea of some questions that were of interest to, to kind of stakeholders, to use the jargon. Yeah. And one of the things that came up was visuals. So Climate Outreach, who are a um, who are uh, climate communication specialists are very interested in um, are very interested in work around visuals. So it does makes we'll be doing we'll be following that up hopefully. And uh, I mean there were too many questions yeah, generated to, for us to, to tackle more than likely. But uh, yeah, visuals is something which we will be looking at, and it, it may be on YouTube because YouTube is a platform which I think is relatively. Well, considering it's the second most visited website in the world, yep. I think it's definitely under-researched compared to some of the other social media platforms. Yeah, that's that's something that I find really interesting. It, why do you think that is? Is it just because it's it's harder to get data out of it compared to something like Twitter? 
Um, is it is it seen as maybe maybe being less serious? Um, I think it's not been so easy to get the data out. So when we um, the work we've been doing was came out of actually being at the um, Digital Methods Institute Summer School in Amsterdam last year, and there we used a relative. Uh, yeah, it's a relatively new tool that Bernard Reed has developed called YouTube Data Tools. Um, this is a great tool. I mean, they've produced lots of great tools there in Amsterdam, but this is a particularly good one, I think. It's pretty simple to use, and it is because he comes from a sociological um, perspective. He's yeah, he's he's got a good understanding of the sort of things you might want to look at. Um, there have been other tools for getting information out of uh, so Webometric Analyst you can get some YouTube data out of as well which is a, a kind of an older tool um, but I don't yeah I don't really know, I mean I think that's one of the things I don't really know I think the question really might be why is Twitter so over researched rather than YouTube being particularly under research, I should probably crunch some numbers and do a proper literature review and, and or a, a quick a quick scan and get some numbers out to try and look to see how many social science I mean I in fact I did do that. There was only I could only find well certainly less than a hundred social science papers about YouTube, considerably less than a hundred, I think. Mm. Compared to Twitter that's quite it's quite yeah. a lot less. Um but yeah, it's interesting. I suppose it's not quite as intuitively such a social platform. I mean, Twitter is all about social interactions, whereas YouTube is a little bit more, you know, for, you know, you have broadcast. a you, yeah, it broadcasts, and then you have a bunch of stuff yeah. below the line, obviously. But um, and YouTube Data Tools is is very good actually at getting the comments out if you want to do that. We haven't looked at that yet. But I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff you can do on content analysis around around looking at the just. You know, just looking at the videos themselves, I think there's a lot of interesting uh, work that could be done there. But and yeah, that is something I'd want to develop. But I think just to go back to the idea about context, I think it was important when we started looking at YouTube to get an idea. Well, it became very apparent very quickly that we needed to have an idea of the logics of the platform users. And without doing that, you know, you're kind of there's a na you know there's a naive assumption perhaps that this stuff which you're finding on YouTube is in some way corresponding to reality. I mean, this is a classic thing in political science where yeah. people are analysing Twitter for for uh, for you know party affiliation or whatever. Or you know, you know, the worst thing you can do is look at your Twitter stream or whatever and try and work out what the general election result is going to be. Yeah, seen that, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, there's not. I mean, you know, there's a limit to the amount you can do. But I think when you start getting into a platform, you at least need to spend some time, you know, understanding what the people who have built the platform, what their what their motivations are. And this is um, some of the work I think that you've looked at um, through your analysis, which you, you talked about the BSA conference um, a couple of weeks ago, yep. where we're talking now, mm -hmm. uh, about uh, Coco the Gorilla. Coco um, the Gorilla. The uh, videos. And so and that's to do with, um, I think you're looking there at how kind of the algorithmic, algorithmic structures of the platform are directing people down certain routes. Yes, yes. So... Um, Yes, yeah, so this this was the work that we did in Amsterdam. That we started in Amsterdam mm -hmm. last summer, and this was quite. I mean, we started from a quite you know small scale 
uh, we, we wanted to find out what the most popular videos were that were related to the COP21 Paris talks in 2015. So that would, these were the high profile climate change negotiations. That was the biggest thing that had happened uh, since the Copenhagen ones. Um, so it was very high, very high profile and we were just interested to find out. Well, in fact, we looked at YouTube and Twitter, but YouTube was more interesting in this case, I think. Um, but then what became apparent very quickly was, um, uh, well, there was one very popular video, this video starring Coco de Gorilla, who I had never heard of before. It was very remiss of me, but uh, it is a very uh, fairly well-known personality. Essentially, this is a gorilla who has been... Um, taught to communicate with humans by sign language. Mm. Uh, quite elderly gorilla now, I think, over 40 years old. Um, and anyway, in this video, Coco is uh, signs out a message, ostensibly signs out a message to uh, negotiators uh, explaining how important biodiversity is and that biodiversity should be part of the climate change negotiations. Mm. And very popular video. Uh, had about a million and a half hits and that was more than twice as many as the next most popular COP21 video which is quite a dry sort of official affair so this and it was made by a very small French NGO Noé uh, so um, well quite small sound too small but you know not not a huge yeah. like Greenpeace or whatever um, so uh, on the surface this was like a great success you know it's quite a cute video with, uh, with a well-known gorilla, signs out this message, and uh, yeah, it's done really well, and uh, you know, publicised the issue of climate change. But then, what we found when we did one of these nice little network diagrams that we were talking about, so I mean, we were sort of interested in in how. So there's something very interesting going on on YouTube about how these entities, how different entities on YouTube. Are linked together now. There's various entities that are, that are inside the platform, so there's some stuff around the, the channels and people who comment. But we were particularly looking at the videos, which is arguably the most important. Well, it's obviously the raison d'etre of yeah. the platform. So YouTube links together videos in different in different ways, and one of the ways it links one of the ways that probably people are most familiar with is that once you watch a video on YouTube, YouTube will then suggest some more videos through their recommender, recommendation system, which is now called uh, Up Next. And this is even more important now because if you just leave it, it will then auto-play. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, kind of, yeah, as is the fashion now with Netflix, yeah. etc. You know, there's no, there's no escape. So, um, uh, so we were, we looked at these networks of recommendations, and then what we found was very surprisingly to us was that although this was by far and away the most popular video connected to the uh, talks, it had no network links to the other videos that were related to the talks. Mm. So if you watch this video, Coco video. Um, YouTube did not direct you to any more climate change content or biodiversity content. And this seems, so I mean, if you can visualize, there's a kind of a normal kind of network diagram of lots and there's different kind of, you can identify different clusters. So there's kind of a cluster in the middle of official 
you know, suits arriving. I don't know if you remember, but there was a whole thing on the first day with, you know, all the world leaders all arriving mm. and shaking hands with each other. And there's, you know, 10 videos, all very boring. We've all linked to each other. So if you watch one of those, YouTube will suggest some more. And then um, if you watch a video with Jeremy Corbyn and Naomi Klein in it, it will, YouTube will suggest four more with them in it as well. And so on and so forth. These videos were all, you know, a little bit popular, but, you know, tens of thousands, something like that. And then on the outside of this network, you have this huge blob, because it's far more popular than all the others, this Coco video, mm. which is kind of, it has no, literally no links to the rest of this network. It's lo- I mean, this is, this is, we talked earlier about how we're not sure sometimes what these network diagrams tell you. This was a case. Where it was very clear. It's something unusual was going on. This was not something, a pattern that I'd seen before. Um, so this then, then we decided that as well as Coco video, Coco de Grilla being very interesting on a kind of uh, many sort of more STS and perhaps, uh, you know, you could do a whole thing about, related to Donna Haraway perhaps, about yeah. how interesting uh, this Coco video is. Uh, this actually became, we realised this might be a route into working out how YouTube recommends videos. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's already been not a lot actually, but there's been some videos. So there was a great there was a great paper uh, last year by um, two years ago I think by O'Callaghan and others about called Down the White Rabbit Hole, which is um, catalogues a whole bunch of uh, extreme right uh, video content and shows how um, how once you, well, as the title of the paper suggests, once you start watching. Uh, some of these videos YouTube will recommend more and more to you because it's learning how you and uh, I mean this isn't this this paper was about extreme right content but you know there's other stuff around Islamic radicalization etc you know this is a fairly this is a fairly well-known uh, issue but what wasn't so clear actually was how so there's an there's issue about you're being narrowed into particular mm categories but how does YouTube decide which categories to narrow you down so what was what we think is happening what what is happening sure this is what's happening in this particular case the Coco case is that it is narrowing you but it's taking you down it's it's not taking you down a climate change path so it's not public the video for a minute anyway has had the effect of publicizing climate change reasonably well and biodiversity but beyond that youtube is not really interested in showing you any more content on that issue the content it does show you is a hundred more videos about coco de gorilla who is massive on youtube okay coco de gorilla bluntly speaking is far more popular than climate change (laughs) So actually, the, when I said it had a million and a half hits, that was uh, that's big by climate change standards. Mm. It's not big by Coco de Gorilla mm. standards. So you know, a big one. Coco de Gorilla meets Robin Williams, which was this you know early eighties documentary. It's got like forty million hits yeah. or something. So what we think is going on is, well, what appears to be going on in this case anyway, is that YouTube is certainly narrowing your field of vision, if you like, but it's narrowing your field of vision towards categories that are already popular and I think you know with the majority of videos you could probably argue that it's in two or three different categories you know there are two or three different sort of ways routes that you could take from a particular video on YouTube but YouTube is so 
certainly in this case anyway, shut down a couple of those routes mm. and only left one open through this recommendation system anyway. So, so is that that's that's really because because obviously these videos must get tagged and categorised in various ways. I, I read something recently about how uh, a few years ago Netflix employed kind of an army of uh, people to to actually uh, real human beings uh, yes. to categorise and tag with uh, in quite minute detail all the videos. Uh, 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 or movies, really, not even just ones on, on Netflix. Yes. In order to feed into this, so uh, I don't know. You have these insane categories on Netflix, don't yeah. you? Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, we don't uh, obviously we don't necessarily know how how Netflix have, uh, how YouTube have done that. No. Uh, unless you do, I, I, but um, but you're suggesting that it, regardless of, of how the categories are actually produced, the they get relative importance depending on the, the, the general popularity of that category or, or of certain connections. Yeah, right? Yes. Now, this is where it gets slightly murky. So, I... At the moment, we don't, we don't know. In fact, some, someone, someone at the BSA conference, one of the... I, I mean, I was... When I presented this work, which is still at quite an early stage, when I presented this at the BSA, one of the... It wasn't a question, it was a comment afterwards, said, well... You should just go and ask uh, some of these uh, people how the algorithm works. And yeah, I'm sure I should ask them how the algorithm works, but I'm not anticipating getting a very full and open response from YouTube, considering they're the second most visited website in the world, and this is how they make all their money. Well, yeah, it's like asking Coke for their recipe. <laughs> yeah. I imagine. I would, I would. Yeah, it's a very good analogy. Yeah, I think. I think. It, I think. I mean, I can ask, but yeah, I, yeah I'm not. Very. So. Um, yeah, I mean, there are keywords you can you use when you upload um, to YouTube and there's a little description that you put in. Um, so that clearly has a part to play. Uh, what I should make clear, actually, is this this research we've done is strips out the personalization aspect. So, you know, the majority of people nowadays will look at YouTube from their own account mm. and that recommendation stuff you get down the sidebar is typically a mixture of entities which are videos which are linked to that video but also videos that are linked to your personal history as well so for instance if i look i would get some cocoa videos and i'd get some music videos linked to something that i'd watched yeah but in this in this case again not because we're trying to get a view from nowhere but just because we're trying to focus on one variable if you like we're just trying to pin down how the algorithm works and use it and, and take it from there. So because, you know, once you get the personalization thing come in, then you also, you're getting some yeah. personal so biases come in. Through, as, uh, 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 so this is how, yeah, yeah, this is, this is, it's replicating what would, yeah, exactly, yeah. what it would be like without being signed in. Um, so there's a thought that so i mean the underlying the underlying logic of youtube is fairly clear and if you can read around actually some of the best literature on this is actually on some of the specialist industry search engine mm -hmm. blogs which is some of which is written by people who've worked in the industry and they've got a fairly good you know it's not it's not academic literature but it's very well informed stuff you know and also you don't need to be a genius to work out that the reason these algorithms exist is to keep you on the website for as long yeah. as possible because then it can show you more ads and they make more money and the, the way they think they can do that, perhaps, is to point you towards content which is already popular. Mm. These algorithms, you know, we talk about them sometimes as if they're very kind of 
sophisticated and um, and they are sophisticated to a certain extent. I mean, you know, I couldn't I couldn't write one, but um, I don't think we want I don't think we want to uh, go overboard on trying to think about how sophisticated the algorithms are. I mean, a classic example of a dumb algorithm is the you know, if you buy a vacuum cleaner on Amazon, it will try and sell you vacuum cleaners for yeah. the rest of your life when clearly you don't want to buy any more. Yeah. Um, in the case of YouTube, you know, maybe if one thinks perhaps this algorithm isn't that sophisticated, then if you wanted to keep people on the website in an unsophisticated way, you'd make a bet that people would want to watch more Coco videos because they've been very popular before. Exactly, yeah. um, now, my suspicion is that mixed in with that kind of very blunt way of keeping you on the website is YouTube does track how videos are watched together mm. so if you watched this Coco video and then you might you know and then it looked at my search history or then would see that I'd watched other videos about climate change that may somehow be incorporated but of course the likelihood is that the recommendation system is the main way that yeah. people do co-watch videos so then you get this kind of snowballing yeah. reinforcing effect and of course, regardless of whether what their intentions are, there is still a sort of politics to that. Of course, uh, which is obviously underlying what, you, uh, what you're just saying. Um, which is which is kind of trivial for social scientists to say, but when yeah. um, but in fact for the platforms, they say, oh, "Well, we're just presenting the co you know we're not even a we're not a publisher, particularly, which is very important mm. on the kind of regulatory standpoint in the mm. states, particular. We're not a publisher; we're just presenting content." And YouTube have made these crazy things statements before about well, you know we just we just lay the content out for people and people you know mm. we we provide the content and people can find the content whatever want whatever content they want clearly that's ridiculous because mm. the amount of content is uploaded is impossible to keep up with mm. so they have to make some choices this is not an anti-algorithm argument you know algorithms are very mm. useful in many ways but what i think we can do what's what's useful to do is to point out the logics how it opens up and closes down some some paths and um, just make people aware of that because it's the stuff is hidden it's like the water you're swimming in as the fish you don't you can't see it yeah absolutely sorry I interrupted you Chris. no 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 that was, that was it that was yeah. it was, uh, just 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 to kind of uh, get yeah. you on to that point um, something um, relates to this uh, again that I think um, as you mentioned on, on the website somewhere is uh, an issue which I think you're looking into an issue of platform movement um, and I think um, I think what you were getting at um, in, the, in this kind of brief point we made was that actually um, some of the discussion is moving away from quite public platforms to maybe just kind of closed groups, right. uh, cl uh, WhatsApp groups, Facebook Messenger groups, this kind of thing. Yes. Uh, which of course probably poses some problems for um, researchers, uh, but of course for the corporations and the companies, they still. Want have all that data. Yes. They might, they might work with it differently, but they still, they still got it. Yes. Um, well, it's a problem for people who like to use the API hoovers because yeah. it becomes, uh, well, it's not a problem because you still get data out of the APIs, but it's it's not um, it's not as, uh, yeah. Uh, if that is the case, if, if, if more conversations are moving more private, then the data you would get from an API paper, if you can call it that, is becoming even less meaningful than it was before because mm. you're seeing an even smaller, excuse me, smaller slice of the pie. Um, yeah, I mean, I had a, I mean, I was in very, I observed something very briefly, a climate science communication thing that happened a couple of months ago and a couple of the scientists uh, 
um, said you just just be aware of this and I'll uh, mm. and have a look at how it unfolds but um, yeah they did a lot of discussion through back channels you know none, none of the discussion between but they had no idea how this was going to go whether no one was going to pay any attention or whether quite a few people were going to pay attention to it and in the end I think it was somewhere in the middle mm. but they didn't do any public discussion about this not surprisingly about how it was unfolding and who who was or wasn't reacting to it it was all done through direct messaging on on more than one channel in fact so um yeah that um, that again that just points to the importance of having some ethnographic element to 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 the um to the research because that was that was important contextual stuff because there was some there were some politics around this communication effort because it's pretty hard to get away from and i mean politics with a small p there about the relationships really between various people involved and um this was being managed as it went along and um yeah it wasn't being managed publicly well there was a public element to it but a lot of it was going on through the back channels yeah so i i, I do wonder if that that when we first started talking this um seeming kind of golden era of um all this avalanches of data that there's going to be people at least thought or, or could be really useful for uh, researchers of all kinds particularly social scientists maybe kind of on the wane um, especially at some people who, um, I've spoken to who are particularly interested in doing research around kind of young people and teenagers who are who use these different platforms in very different ways mm, yes it's, there's certain things you put on Facebook there's certain things you put on Instagram yes. there's things uh, the, the really important things really is, is direct messaging and yeah. WhatsApp groups and, and yeah, yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff or, or the, the more sensitive interesting type um, uh, type stuff and of course that would be the same for, for different groups and we know that certainly politicians use WhatsApp groups very, uh, and terrorist organisations yeah. and this is why um, Amber Rudd's been getting very interested in, Indeed. in trying to get into them which in a kind of a rather silly way but um, I wonder if that's um, highlights of course the importance of the ethnographic element that you said but also kind of cross-platform or kind of multiple platform kind of research yes. because it's going to be much more difficult than just dumping a load of data from Twitter yes um, especially if you might not even know have any sense of whether individual users or actors are the, are the same or, or not yeah yeah I agree I mean that was one of the, at the discovery day that was one of the things that came up about um, the importance of doing cross-platform analysis um, and Ideally, if we're going back to my kind of Nirvana sort of thick data uh, uh, um, aim, if you like, yes, you would. I mean, that's a really classic ethnographic thing to do would be to follow the story around. And the same way in, um, in uh, traditionally, you may follow people or groups around different spaces in a city or in, uh, in rural areas or whatever. You'd follow people around different spaces online. And of course, people have done that great digital ethnographies um, already uh, in the literature it's uh, hard to do because you need to have um, it's, I mean it, to, to get the buy-in from the participants I mean arguably it's even it may even be harder to do than it would be in a, in a kind of a real I say real life you know what I mean offline situation IRL, yeah. yeah IRL yeah situation um, because it opens up a whole lot of stuff about secrecy and privacy and what you may be able to see and what you might not be able to see. Um, 
particularly in areas like climate change. I mean, it's not something I've particularly had a problem with up to now, but I would anticipate it at some point. But I know other social science researchers in climate change who have found it not impossible, but very time-consuming to get buy-in from climate Mm. scientists and communicators because, well, to put it bluntly, Climategate, the release of the emails many years ago, has... um, made people extremely wary mm-hmm. about these kinds of issues and with I don't want to get into climate gate but no, no, with no. good with good with good reason you know yeah. that that you know people will be wary and you know there's been lots of other examples of uh, email leaks and various mm-hmm. kinds of leaks you know in many different spheres since climate gate just happened to be one of the very first ones but um yeah the, these are these are problems for for people to get past to get to get the access but in theory i mean the other, and the other problem of course is that I said it's very cheap to get api data mm. it's time consuming and you need resources and increasingly nowadays you probably need external funding to have the time to go and do one of these ethnographic things which is um why i think it's important that I make a good job of it as possible yeah, because yeah, I'm yeah. I'm conscious that um I've got funding I've have funding to do this and I mean you can you know people do do people do do great jobs but if you think about the politics of universities nowadays you know lecturers full time lecturers have uh, you know increasing workloads and decreasing amounts of time to do their research no matter yeah. no matter what the workload model says that's uh, that's yeah. the yeah. that's the that's the fact of the matter so. Um, yeah, doing this kind of more in-depth qualitative work is, uh, yeah, it's resource intensive. Mm. Um, I think, yeah, so I'd, I'd say what, actually one thing I want I should mention related to that is one of the methods we are going to be using, and we'll do actually, I'm preparing a paper with um, Sarah Luthwaite from National Centre for Research Methods in Southampton, and there's a paper actually on the digital ethnography uh, subject so Christine Hine who's probably one of the well definitely one of the leading people in the area she's got a interesting conference on digital work coming up with Surrey in a couple of months and we're presenting a paper there on a method we're going to use for digital ethnography called over the shoulder methods kind of uh, nice. yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with yeah, this sort yeah, of yeah. thing so um, this is repurposing some stuff Sarah's done in um disability studies and um, this is really a way to try and get under the skin a bit if I, if I think go back to my slightly chunky analysis about the pie if the API will only get you a certain slice of the pie this is trying to get some qualitative data which is you can't get through the API mm-hmm. so to get essentially is a way of getting people to talk about their social media usage but while actually they actually show you what they do when they're on social media Um, so we ran a trial of this a couple of weeks ago and this was quite interesting and uh, it became very apparent actually that this was a really really potentially a really rich way of getting some data out a far more rich way of just me doing a one-to-one interview in a room without any computers present for someone to actually show you what their Twitter page or a Facebook page or whatever looks like and to just to show you some of the people are following and immediately they start telling you about some of the meaning which is attached to these people you know and about how so and so used to be an academic and now they work for a professional company and uh, 
you know now they're just spouting corporate speak and uh, you know the, the way that people's online personas change and what effect that has on the people and the politics of following and unfollowing and and then also so there's a whole all that whole kind of constellation of meaning around yeah. people's social media usage but then also some of the actual more quantitative stuff which you could get if the API would let you as I say it doesn't let you for good reason but you know asking people to show you a list of people they blocked or muted yeah. and telling you some stories yeah. about that and why did you block that person and not mute them or vice versa yeah. and there's some very interesting politics going on between the between the two there. some people you know I don't care if you see that I've blocked you I'm yeah, just like yeah. you know but <laughs> for other people you have to mute them because it's a bit more you're kind of fed up with them, but you don't want to unfollow them or you don't want to block exactly, them. Or yeah, that's getting some of that rich data yeah. that, you, that you mentioned. Earlier. Yeah, and I think there's so, so this is, a, so yeah, this is coming out of work, so great work Sarah's done uh, um, on accessibility, um, which is her, her main thing. But this is a, this is a way I think of, mm repurposing the the methodological stuff she's done uh to what's not, not repurposing it a little bit but um and i there may well be some accessibility issues that come out that come out of this but um, i'm certainly anticipating some gender issues that are going to yeah. come out of this that was one of the things that came out even when i was writing the proposal was the 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 problem that um well the problem that women have on various social media platforms is well documented already but in in, well, if you mix that with the inherent gender bias in science and climate science is no uh, no exception to that then you've got in theory you could have quite a toxic uh, toxic cocktail there and it's certainly it's certainly a problem I mean anecdotally from speaking to a couple of climate scientists female climate scientists they do have significant problems when they stick their head above a power pet so um, yeah there's some interesting stuff there again stuff that you wouldn't I mean, you could get some minor examples of uh, abuse or whatever out of just sucking the data out, but the really rich sort of... Uh, it really would be kind of traces there, wouldn't it? Yeah, that, yeah. And kind that, of deep data. And, that's, and that it's not really... And that, I think that's not really the stuff that's... You know, if someone swears at you or threatens you, whatever, I'm not... You know, that stuff is you know, massively problematic, obviously. Yeah. But in a, in a way, the extreme stuff is quite... You know, they, those people are blocked. And, you know, if they're persistent, they may open another account. And, you know, all this stuff is very problematic. But then there's another layer of stuff which is a bit more um, kind of, you know, micro, if you like. But it, it, it is it can be, I think, quite, you know, it's been quite imperceptible to me, actually, and yeah. there, until people have sat down. But and, it has and, an and impact on yeah, people. It has a huge impact, and, yes. Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah. So, again, so this is the sort of... So, hopefully, using these methods is going to be... Um, is going to be one way that we can get in, you know, it's, not, it's probably not, a f I don't know where it would sit in relation to a full-blown sort of digital ethnography, but it's using that, it's using that kind of orientation to try and get at some of this stuff, which is, which social media users will hopefully recognise immediately from, and, and again, this is not just in climate change, I think climate change is a really great case because it has the science and the politics and the environment all mixed together and it's all entangled together but i think this is a great case that other people in lots of different walks of life will be able to recognize um elements of you know what it means to be on uh, social media and uh, yeah hopefully we'll get some we'll get some uh, some broader concepts out of it yeah and no, i'm sure you will. I, think, I think it's clear straight away what that broader application uh, could be 
Um, that's been really great. Thanks for talking to me. I'm really thanks for coming, Chris. Uh, no, no, thanks. It's been um, really interesting to see where the project goes as well. So maybe can we come have another chat with you again later on when um, indeed when yeah it's developed further. That would be great. Um, but uh, for now, I'll say goodbye and uh, nice to talk to you. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for investment. There was my chat with Warren. I uh, hope you found that interesting. Uh, if you'd like to hear more about Warren's work, you can follow him on Twitter at Warren Pierce, uh, which is P-E-A-R-C-E. Um, and you can um, follow the Twitter feed for his project, at, uh, which is at M-A-K-C-L-I-C-O-S-O-C, as in Making Climate Social. And you can... Um, follow their Medium uh, account, medium.com slash making dash climate dash social. Next time I'll be talking to Rachel Thompson from the University of Sussex and her work on uh, everyday digital childhoods and the kind of multi-methods approaches uh, she's used in her work uh, and some quite innovative qualitative uh, approaches to uh, researching that that she's been using. So, see you then.